You're listening to Fun Shack, the podcast, episode three. I'm talking today with Simon Whitten, a special counsel in the London office of Deborah Boys and Plimpton. Simon's one of the most respected lawyers in private equity and has advised buyout firms and the UK government on a wide range of fund and transaction related matters. He's currently a member of the BBCA Council, which is the association's main oversight body, and is also chaired its legal committee and Invest Europe's Tax Legal and Regulatory Committee, so he really knows his stuff. Today we're going to talk about corporate governance in a private equity context. Hello Simon. Hello Ross. You are a visiting professor in practice at the London School of Economics now I understand. That's right, yes, about six months now. As well as being, uh, is it special counsel at Debevoise and Plimpton? That's right, special counsel at Debevoise and Plimpton. That's about two years now. Which you joined following the late, great S.J. Berwin. Well, I actually joined uh, in 2017, having spent three and a half years doing a doctoral research project. So I stood down as a partner of S.J. Berwin in 2013 and then had a gap of three years or so, three and a half years, whilst I uh, did the PhD research. So you didn't go sailing around the world? I didn't go sailing around the world, no. I spent most of my time locked in a library. (laughs) So what possessed you to do that? I'd always wanted to do something academic. It took me a long time to leave academia, actually. In the first place, I did a couple of degrees uh, before I started practicing as a solicitor uh, and um, had always hankered after going back and doing uh, a doctoral project and doing some academic research more broadly Um, and you know 2013 became the right moment for me Uh, and um, uh, never looked back really I thoroughly enjoyed my PhD I spoke to a lot of people beforehand who told me that you know I'd regret it and that you know after two years of looking at the same subject uh, in such detail I would um, become completely fed up with it and wish I'd never started the project I have to say I never got to that point I um, I thoroughly enjoyed the research I did. I thoroughly enjoyed having the time to really explore something in detail, which is obviously something that you don't get to do in practice. And you never got bored. Private equity corporate governance is three years worth of entertainment. Well, I was lucky with my subject because as well as being somewhat academic, and I did spend a certain amount of time in the library, my research was actually empirical, which meant that I was a lot of the time actually out in the field, as it were, talking to people, working with private equity firms, private equity-backed companies, trying to understand what they were doing. So I found that very interesting and therefore, no, didn't get bored. And you see, you you had a hypothesis to start with. Can you talk us through what that was? Yeah, I sort of had a hypothesis. I I suppose what I more had was a a question. Uh, I really wanted to understand what it was that private equity firms did that was distinctive, that was different to what other commercial organisations did in terms of governance structures. I I believed, for some reason, that the governance structures of private equity-backed companies were probably a source of value-add. They were probably something that, that helped private equity firms to do well with their underlying portfolio companies. But I was interested to try and understand, A, whether that was true, and B, to what extent um, the structures that they put in place really did uh, differ from those that you see in other organisations. I suppose that was the sort of starting point. When I got into LSE and started to read around the subject, 
it became clear to me that there's a lot of academic work around corporate governance, uh, a lot of theory in relation to corporate governance, but it's all based on a different type of company. It's all based upon widely held companies with distant shareholders who don't really have the wherewithal or the economic incentives to actually influence what's going on. And actually the corporate governance mechanisms that you therefore see in that part of the market, in, if you like, publicly traded companies, are different and they're different for a good reason to the ones that you see in private equity where those same misalignment of incentives, if you like, doesn't really apply. And so what I started to do was to understand that the theory that we have in the academic world around corporate governance doesn't really fit the practice of private equity. And so I decided that it would be quite fun to see if I could put together an alternative theory of corporate governance, one that did fit the private equity space. And that's really what I tried to do, tried to, to map out you know, what it was that private equity firms did, but more than that, what they were trying to achieve with the structures they put in place, what the objectives were, what the theoretical underpinnings were for the structures that we see. I mean, private equity isn't that new, and it's pretty big now, so it's quite strange that this hadn't already been already been done to an extent. Yeah, and there have been people who have looked at board structures, and there's some really good research done by a number of, um, of, of academics and, and practitioners uh, around governance structures. But most of the research that's done in private equity, the vast majority of it, and there's a lot, is quantitative research. So, you know, taking numbers and trying to work out what drives performance and what doesn't drive performance. And and that's very interesting. But but my research was different because it was qualitative research. I mean, what I was not doing was trying to draw some sort of causal link between, you know, this number of people on a board and an outperformance of the fund. I, I, I wasn't, I mean, that's interesting, but it wasn't the subject that I picked. What I was really trying to do was to describe and explain what was being done. Uh, and I therefore make no claims about, uh, no, no, at least no substantiated claims uh, about whether or not governance actually creates better uh, uh, performance for the underlying portfolio company, uh, let, let alone for the ultimate investors uh, in the funds. But, but what I do is try to explain why private equity firms do what they do and presumably they do it because they believe that it drives performance and you know they're repeat yeah. investors they do this for a living um, and if it wasn't if it was wasteful activity uh, they would stop doing it and, mm. and they don't they work quite hard to do it better it, it's actually very interesting because when I started my project I spoke to a few practitioners and I told them what I was doing corporate governance in private equity backed companies and they said well that won't take you very long because we don't have, you know, that's the benefit of, of private equity. We don't have corporate <laughs> We don't need it. We, we, don't, we don't bother with that. We just align incentives and we let people get on with it. And that was a bit disheartening because I thought I was going to spend three and a half years studying something that wasn't really, uh, wasn't really there to see. But in fact, of course, it's not true. In fact, of course, private equity firms, although they don't think about it in those terms, they don't think about it as corporate governance. They don't think about it as sort of bureaucracy um, and, and, and policies and so on. What they think about is... Um, is how organisations can make better decisions, better decisions more quickly, uh, where quick decisions are needed, um, with the right information, with the right process. And they think long and hard about that. And mm. of course they do, because if you think about it, it's pretty obvious that companies perform better when they make good decisions and on, on average perform worse when mm. they make bad decisions. So it's hardly surprising that people who, who buy and sell and improve companies for a living focus on decision-making processes. Mm. But there's value in standing back and trying to objectively assess. I mean, there's one, there's one thing having an intuitive 
on the ground feel for why what you're doing makes sense. But there's another there's another way of looking at it, which is standing back and saying in the within the corporate world, this is why what we're doing works. What if you agree with that? Why do you think it's important to have that kind of more objective understanding? Well, I think uh, for for a number of reasons. I mean, one is I think it's important for practitioners to stop and think about why they do what they do, because that's the only way really you can work out what to do more of and what to do less of. You know, if you want to improve a process or, a, you know, in this case, a governance structure, you really have to kind of take it apart and think, well, why, why is this bit there? What's it supposed to be doing? And, and can, can, do we need it? And if we do need it, can we make it do what it's supposed to be doing better? So th- there's, there's value in, in stepping back and helping practitioners to understand what the structures are. And, and and also there's value, to be perfectly honest, and I'm finding this now that I'm back in practice, in helping one private equity firm understand what other firms are doing. You know, good practice. I hesitate to call it best practice because there are different practices and different practices work for different people at different times, different strategies and so on. So I don't think there's any one right answer. But but there are good practices and there are bad practices mm. and helping firms to understand what their what their competitors are doing, what their peers are doing uh, is is a valuable exercise. So that's important. But I think, you know, f- from an academic perspective it's important because there's a real lack of understanding in the academic world, certainly in the legal academic world. I mean, I don't speak for for the sort of finance departments of business schools where I think there are lots of people who do understand private equity, but certainly in the kind of policy and legal parts of uh, universities, there is a lack of understanding of, about private equity. And uh, I think that is problematic because you know sometimes those people are influential in, in shaping law and policy. And um, if they don't really understand the structure of the organizations that they're supposed to be talking about and theorizing about and making or suggesting policy for, uh, then you know it's hard for them to, to do that well, and 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 pol- pol- politicians even more so. I mean, mm. clearly, you know, I, part of what I wanted to do was to shine a light on what was being done because I'm a believer in private equity. I think the model works well. It's the reason I went into private equity law in the first place is because I believed it was a it was a good, robust model. Of ultimately for certain types of company anyway a better a better ownership model than the alternatives and and i think it's important that you have some you know robust relatively independent evidence to demonstrate that actually this is this is a model that, that creates better more effective more efficient companies and you know politicians who have regarded private equity with suspicion you know probably could benefit from understanding a bit better what actually goes on in the vast majority of, of, of firms in the country. I did think reading your thesis that you were getting seriously match fit for any potential regulatory debate down the line, getting all of your arguments really straight. Did that cross your mind? I mean, uh, up to a point. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I tried to be, I, d- I do try to sort of step back and, and be objective. I, I mean, I, you know, recognise that... Um, when you study a subject, you, you have to try and stand back and not let your own kind of inherent uh, uh, experiences and, and pot- potential bias in influence the outcome. Um, but I mean, I did come to a conclusion that you know, over-regulation of the governance processes in private equity-backed companies was not likely to be very effective. I mean, you know, whether, whether or not it's the right thing or the wrong thing um, from a political standpoint is a different question but if you're interested in what works then you know I did come to a view that in this particular part of the market um, you know 
the the market was the best way to determine the, what the structure should look like. And yes, guidance, best practice handbooks, you yeah, know, yeah. help from people like me in terms of you know boards understanding what their responsibilities are and and how they mm. can best manage and mitigate their liabilities. That that's all important, of course. Mm. But you know, too rigid. Uh, over-regulation in this area, I think, just hampers businesses from doing what's right and, and, what's, and yeah. what's best for their business at their particular moment. So let's try and unpack a little bit of why you came to the conclusion that you did, perhaps starting with some first principles about corporate governance itself. And what's your view with regards to the prevailing thinking about um, the, the main issues in corporate governance per se? Well, I mean, most of the discussion about corporate governance, most, not all, but most of the discussion is about corporate governance in public companies. And and there you, you do have, you know, a, a different set of dynamics which drive, you know, different requirements for corporate governance mechanisms. So, you know, on the one hand, if you've got a set of shareholders whose, um, whose interests are in... in um, are generally not in taking huge... Um, active positions in the companies in which they invest if they're if, if, if they're distant from management and if they don't understand the industry or the business that they've invested in because they've in, because they can't because they've invested in you know small taken small positions in large numbers of companies well then the, of course that drives corporate governance debate and discussion and drives some behaviors which you know people will want to to, to address or control in various ways but of course once you take that same debate and transplant it into the private equity world you, you, you're really dealing with a completely different world and therefore you need to adjust your terms of reference in order to think about corporate governance in in that context in that world and that's really really what I tried to do and of course you know companies have a responsibility to make sure that they comply with the law to make sure that they that they satisfy their stakeholders needs and their stakeholders mean all of the people and, and 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 outside interests that are relevant to them in the way that their business operates and they need to to, to deal with those and, and balance all of those stakeholder needs in a way that uh, drives you know efficiency and value uh, for the business and you know there are various ways in which um, companies can do that and you know trying to understand and unpack what those mechanisms are is to me at the heart of, of of this part of the of the market of corporate governance in this part of the market and so you know what i what i found was that you know whereas academic theory and much of the current political uh, debate around uh, around corporate governance to be honest is focused on this idea that somehow managers need to be controlled because they've got misaligned incentives with shareholders and left to their own devices they'll pay themselves too much money which is the kind of the totemic uh, debate uh, point um, but also that they will um, you know they will they will seek to engage in self-aggrandizing projects and that they will try and hold on to shareholders money and use it for inefficient means because bigger companies mean um, you know mean um, Kudos more, more perks and kudos yeah, for them yeah. um, you know so that's all you know that, that that's that's all true uh, in the private equity world but to a much much less much much lower extent you know you don't have those same concerns you do have a need to oversee management but mm. but actually 
for a very different set of reasons on the whole management you know don't have the incentives nor indeed do they have the ability to you know increase their salaries and to uh, and to engage in self-aggrandizing projects uh, and hold on to shareholders money but 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 you know private equity firms still need to uh, have a look at what's being done by the management team of course and a big part of what the board structure is or is about is doing that but it's it's much less about sort of overseeing and controlling management in 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 the sort of public company sense and much more about forming a, a partnership with them, making sure that they're sticking to the plan, making sure that the business plan that you agreed when you invested is the one that they are executing on, making sure they're doing their job well, and so it's performance management, making sure that they're executing the, the plan effectively. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and as I say, forming a partnership because you can't anticipate every, every decision when you invest. You don't know how things are gonna pan out. There will be you can't write complete contracts in the academic uh, jargon. You, you can't start, say at the beginning exactly how things are going to go because you don't obviously know how things are going to pan out and what decisions are gonna need to be made and when they're gonna need to be made. So you have to put in place a decision-making process that you believe optimizes the decisions that get made going forward. So you, you have to anticipate the uncertainty that the company faces and deal with that. By, by sort of buttoning down a process which will enable you both to know that a decision needs to be taken because part of the battle is knowing when you've got to take a decision and then once you know that a decision point has been reached you know working out uh, how best to to reach a decision that's most likely to be the optimal decision for the company but you have the same conundrum in a public company context don't you you do but that's much more left to the management team i mean the board in a public company context is well, it meets less frequently on average. It has more people who are less well-informed about the business and the strategy and the markets. I mean, this is an overgeneralization, of course, and um, you know we're, there, there, are, there, there are all sorts of boards out there. But on the whole, you know, a private equity board on average is smaller. Uh, the people do understand the business. They meet more frequently. They understand the business very, very well because they did a huge amount of due diligence on it before they invested. And they understand the sector usually because they're often, you know, invested in that sector, you know, across different diff diff different businesses. Um, and so, you know, you end up with a group of people around the table more frequently who are making, therefore, more decisions. And those decisions are much more for the governance structure than they are just left to, um, you know, an mm -hmm. executive management team. Um, so, I mean, yes, yeah. I mean, all organisations need effective decision-making uh, mechanisms. For me... One of the differences with private equity is that the, the decision-making mechanisms are baked into the documents. They're baked into the company's constitution. They're, they're baked into the processes that are a condition of investment by the private equity firm. So, so they're not things that it's up to management to decide and control on, a, on an ongoing basis. You know, Management can't decide they don't want to have board meetings every month and they don't want to have decisions going to the board that deal with this, that and the other. Um, you know, and they, they, they don't want a decision-making process that's just left to the managers, you know, o acting alone. But that's not done in a, that's not done in an overbearing or a hostile way in any sense. I mean, the, you know, obviously sometimes things don't work out as planned, but the objective of the mechanism is to establish some sort of partnership structure where what's effectively happening is that the right people, a relatively small number of well-informed individuals, sit around a table on a regular basis and, and, and make decisions together in partnership, benefiting, each benefiting from the input that the others are able to provide. Everybody brings a different perspective to the decision-making process. Uh, often you bring an outsider in, not always, but often you bring an outsider in to, 
often chair the board or sometimes just sit on the board as a non-executive. Um, and the purpose of those people is to add to the resource around the board table for the people for the benefit of, of everybody around the board mm. table. It's not an oversight and it's not a I mean, there's an element of that, but predominantly it's not an oversight uh, arrangement. Predominantly, it's um, it's a partnership arrangement where you you all agree that you all benefit from all making decisions collectively. In a public market context, it's seen very much as about being uh, an independent kind of check and balance, and not so much about driving value. Whereas in private equity, as I understand it, it's mu it, you're, you're part of the, you are a check and balance and you are monitoring, but you're also driving the company, helping to drive and reform the com company strategy. Is that is that okay? I mean, in a way, it's the it's the more natural um, state of affairs. I mean, in a way, the, the, the kind of oversight boards that were established in the public company world were there because there was a, 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 a breakdown in communication between you know what what you could call the owners of the business it's not very fashionable to call shareholders owners of businesses but but you know between the shareholders and the managers the sort of breakdown in communication led to the need for some you know intermediate body that would um, that would help to uh, uh, to make sure that um, that managers were being in some way overseen controlled you know kept under uh, kept kept within the kind of scope of what shareholders would want them to be doing and um, uh, and, and that their performance was being watched. But, um, you know, in a way, it's a much more natural state of affairs for the shareholders in a business and the managers in a business to sit down regularly and make decisions together. And that's, you know, what private equity facilitates. You've got, you know, you've got a, a relatively small number of, of owners, each of whom has a significant stake in the business mm. and therefore has absolutely got the incentives to, to, to invest in, thinking carefully about decisions that need to be made and tracking the way the business is operating and so on and so on. Uh, and, and those people are the, are, are the people who, um, who can sit around the board table with management on a regular basis and, and help management to make good decisions. Um, you know, they're not the distant shareholders who don't have the knowledge or incentives um, to sit with management on a regular basis. You know, so you don't kind of need that, 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 that board structure, which is other, you know, which, which is helpful and necessary in that context, but which you know is actually wouldn't wouldn't actually help in a private equity scenario. And in fact, it would just get in the way. Mm. Um, you know, independent directors. You know, it's not a concept that you that you would recognise in a private equity scenario. You know, directors. You don't want them to be kind of quotes independent. You you want them to have a stake in the business and to be. Mm. Uh, to be sitting around the table, really wanting things to work, um, because because they because they've got a financial incentive to make sure that it does work. You know, on the other hand, and this is a very important point and one that I bring out strongly in my thesis. You know, on the on the on on the one hand, yes, the private equity firms have a big incentive to make sure that every individual business that they back succeeds, but they also have an incentive to make sure that things are done properly. They also have reputational and direct financial incentives um, to make sure that you know governance is done appropriately in the company so in other words whereas you know one if, if, if you're a if you're a hypothetically if you're a manager all of your wealth is tied up in one business because it's your owner manager your your whole kind of reputation in the local community you know your car your salary your pension are all 
tied up in this one business, then you've probably got a slightly unhealthy um, lack of diversification, which means that you're probably more willing to take risk that probably society would rather you didn't take. You've probably got incentives to do things that probably society would rather control. Private equity firms, they do have financial incentives to ensure that the outcomes are good, but they also have incentives to make sure that things don't, if they do go wrong, they don't go badly wrong, you know, that they go wrong in a controlled way. Obviously, some businesses fail, mm. but they want to be able to walk away from that business knowing that they that their reputations are intact, that they did everything properly, that they can't be pursued, you know, by by creditors or worse, by, you know, by, by lawyers uh, acting uh, to try and have them prosecuted or disqualified or whatever. Mm. Um, that financial liability can't find its way or back up from the company to the mm. fund and therefore infect, yeah. you know, other uh, investments that they, they operate. They've got to go back and look their investors in the eye every three, four, five years. And so... You know they need to be able to demonstrate that they're that that, that, that they're responsible um, owners of the of the businesses that they invest in, and that they are therefore good kind of stewards of the capital that's entrusted to them by by limited partners. And so, you know, they 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 do have incentives businesses to do well, of course, very uh, strong incentives, very powerful incentives to ensure that businesses do well. But those are tempered by their diversification across a number of businesses and by their uh, by the nature of the repeat fundraising that they do. That contrast holds not just with a, some kind of owner-manager or family-owned business, it surely holds to an extent with managers of public companies as well because they are, you know, their job is their job. So, Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It holds with, um, and, and that's in a sense with the managers of the pri- public companies, in a sense that's why you need the corporate governance mechanisms that, you know that that you see it's why you need a board structure and so on is partly because you do have these sort of misaligned incentives and um but they're magnified in the private equity world the 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 incentive of the shareholder to control the managers is is hugely magnified because they are um because because they are often associated with the companies that they operate so you know if mm. you if 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 a company gets into trouble it doesn't take very long before the newspapers identify the private equity firm that is the part owner or owner of that business, and um, and and so you know it doesn't take very long before any uh, any misdeeds on the part of the company are in some way, fairly or unfairly, but in some way attributed back to the to to, to the owner. So there is a greater incentive for a private equity backed company to act ethically than a public public company managers or you know, family, you know, individual shareholders. Is that is that going too far? Or it seems like the logical conclusion of what you're saying. I think as it, it, that's probably an overstatement because, you know, ev- everybody's got different sets of incentives and they operate differently. And so I don't think you could make that statement as categorically. I wouldn't make that statement as categorically as you just did. But what, what I think I can, what I, what I can say is that there are very strong incentives in private equity and, and increasingly so as investors become you know more concerned about ethical responsible investment type issues increasingly so as the media understands the industry better and spends more time looking at and thinking about companies that are in private equity ownership i mean increasingly uh, there are very strong incentives for private equity firms to manage their businesses in a responsible manner and to be responsible stewards of capital um you can certainly you can certainly say that 
you know, I, I, it's hard to say whether there's greater or lesser because you know it, mm. it kind of depends sure. on the company and the business and their set of incentives. Um, but I mean, y y you can certainly you can certainly say that private equity firms, you know, all other things being equal, do have very strong incentives to manage businesses responsibly. Presumably, that means then that the um, there is something of a misalignment of interest between the the uh, the needs of the private equity firm and let's say the needs of the company in isolation, because the company in isolation might just pursue profit at all costs within the law. Yeah, I mean that's one of the conclusions you know that I that I've come to in the thesis, which is that you know the the fact that you've got a private equity owner private equity investor means that you need a governance structure in place that to some extent protects the interests of the private equity investor separately and distinctly from the interests of the underlying company so to some extent they're the same thing but you know a private equity firm you know might well say actually although we know that you would make money out of this strategy and it's perfectly legal you know we're not comfortable with it we're not comfortable with it because it breaks some ethical boundary that we've undertaken to our investors that we won't break for example or we're not comfortable with it because we think it might impede our ability to go out and raise money in the future because it, it it's not the sort of it's not the sort of investment that will play well with our institutional investor base so there may be circumstances and i think they're quite rare in practice but there there may be circumstances where the governance structure has to has to give the private equity firm a right, even if it's a minority investor, to stop the company from going off in a direction mm -hmm. that it feels uncomfortable with, or that it's not it's not allowed to allow its portfolio companies to, to go off into because you know its own investors aren't comfortable with. It. So, you know, it's it's always been the case, or it's long been the case that many investors have particular sectors that they just won't particular types of business that they just won't countenance. You know, exclusion lists, yeah, yeah, things that yeah. you just can't do. Well, I mean, if you invest at a very basic level, if you're a private equity firm and you're subject to those exclusions, then you have to be able to stop the businesses you invest in from, mm. you know, from from sort of saying, okay, well, we never used to do arms, but we're going to start doing yeah, arms because we yeah. think it's a profitable area of business. You have to be able to stop them from doing that in order just to comply with the covenants that you've made to your own investors. And it's not, it's not, it's not like you're invested in liquid stock, so you can't just sell up if they start doing something you don't like. You, you're kind of you're locked in. So. So those kind of governance mechanisms at the most basic level have to be there in order to enable the private equity firm to you know just comply with the covenants it's made to its own to its own investor base but but you know beyond that you know they have to also now increasingly be able to prevent the company from doing things that are just not yeah you know that are just not consistent with the kind of the way that the world is moving with the value set that investors are increasingly adopting and increasingly imposing on their private equity yeah. firms actually to be fair the, the value set that private equity firms themselves are adopting because they recognize that that you know therein is a is, yeah. a, is the route yeah. to value creation for for their end for their business yeah i thought that was a really fascinating conclusion that you came to in the paper i think you call it being over invested is that the term? Yeah. yeah 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 well and so you say that it's it, it will happen in practice relatively rarely but my view is that these ethical considerations or quasi-ethical considerations are becoming more and more yeah. important and with you know the advent of social media or whatever reputations can be destroyed overnight in a way that just wasn't the case even five years ago yeah and so in a sense you could see you could see the 
the alignment becoming even more distinct between private equity firms that are becoming much more risk averse with regards to anything that could affect their reputation and you know and just any other kind of company that's pursuing profit yeah so i mean when i said it was rare what i mean really is that it's rare for there to be you know midway through an investment that kind of you know bust up between management on uh -huh. the one hand saying we want to go off and do this and um, and the private equity firm on the other saying, well, well, no, you can't for, for, I mean, they might be saying it for business reasons, but it's relatively rare, I think, for them to be saying it um, for kind of responsible investment type reasons. And that's because I think that, that all the work is done up front. So, yeah. you know, I think it's true that private equity firms now are frequently not investing in, not even looking at companies in certain sectors just because you know, they don't want to be in, in mm. invested in those kinds of businesses for either not allowed to be because their investors don't want them to be or or simply because they're they're parts of the market that they don't like and so i think that um you know and increasingly there's a kind of well not increasingly i think it's always been the case that you sit down with the management team at the outset and you you work mm. out what this business is going to do and what its strategy is and you write a business plan and so you're you're aligned from day one in terms of the execution of the of the of the plan and so to some extent that avoids the need for you know a mm. fallout later on but i mean it doesn't always avoid the need for a fallout so yeah. you do still need yeah. those mechanisms in place to make sure that if necessary if needed and you know usually you put the documents in a drawer and you never look at them again but if needed you you can you know you can control the company moving in a direction that, that you don't want it to go yeah. in it's interesting because if you know if you if you take that to its logical conclusion it means that private equity private equity's kind of whether it's reputational or ethical dis decisions the conclusions they come to with regards to that will become more and more important in the world particularly as they get you know a larger component of corporate ownership but also as they you know increase the uh, the relevance of reputational risk suddenly what they view as a risk starts to matter because it affects the allocation of capital and therefore you'd really want a private equity industry that's thought long and hard about the nature of ethics and responsible investment and not just kind of slapped some label on something yeah and and you know in that regard and i agree and in that regard you know one of the features of the model of course is that you do have to go and face your investors regularly and you have to go and ask them for more capital. It's not just you have to justify what you've done with the last lot. You know, most private equity firms, if you're successful, go back and ask for capital on a regular basis, and uh, and and that means asking to you know to re-up to to put faith in you by putting more money in to the fund. And um, that's a um, you know that's a process which means that you are constantly reevaluating what you're doing because you've constantly got to message to your investors. And in the changing world, that message changes um, each time you go back and. Uh, and, and, and speak to them, particularly in relation to some of the issues that you're that you're focusing mm -hmm. on. So, um, yes, I mean it is important that you don't just slap a label on it. And um, I think it, you know, as investors become more sophisticated in this area, which don't, many of them already are very sophisticated in this area, but as more more of them become more sophisticated in this area, and as as there's more focus on it during the fundraising process, which there, which there now is a lot, um, it does cause private equity firms to have to kind of think carefully about what they're doing, how they're doing it, how they're presenting that to investors, and how they're you know, actually living those commitments on an ongoing yeah. basis you know, in the portfolio companies. So when you were doing your empirical research, what were some of the mechanisms that you found that private equity firms were using in order to um, 
kind of contractually control management teams from the outset, given, as you've described, you don't know actually what's going to happen. I mean, the mechanisms are reasonably straightforward and pretty tried and tested. So, you know, in, 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 in the investment documentation that's negotiated at the outset, you know, a significant amount of time goes into thinking about the, the governance structures, you know, who's on the board, who gets to appoint people to the board, how many people get appointed from the private equity fund manager, do we have an external person, if so, what's the process for appointing the external person, um, you know, what matters have to co go to the board, you know, what's, where's the board's authority and, and therefore where's the management authority, you know, what, what can management do without board approval when things come to the board you know who has to vote in favor is it just a majority decision or is it something that requires unanimous consent or at least consent from the from from the representatives from the private equity investor um, you know what matters can't the board decide on their own do they need to go back and get investor approval for um, you know so that's sort of very significant you know changes in strategy or how you know. homogenized is that kind of thing well it's you know, there's a lot of boilerplate. There's a lot of homogeneity in the in the in the documentation. It varies from firm to firm. You know, to some extent, and different firms have different approaches. In particular, they have different approaches in relation to, to to the to the rights of the board, for example, and you know where where veto rights sit, whether they sit with the shareholder or whether they sit around the board table, and how those are exercised. So there is some var variability, but mostly. Um, the variability comes in the way it's operated in practice. So that's what I found most interesting in the work I was doing. It's, it's less so, you know, it's it's less what's in the documents, which, you know, to be honest, most practitioners, you know, even mm. if they were familiar with them at the at the beginning, you know, they don't. It's not something that they memorize and commit to, uh, to, to 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 memory before they go into a board meeting. So I mean, the the, the processes and procedures are there uh, to some extent as a backstop. Mm. Um, and actually what happens on the ground is much more flexible, much more determined according to the situation the company faces. So, for example, you know, one of the companies I worked with, one of the, one of the investors that I worked with had invested in a company that was making, you know, lots of regular, as a buy and build strategies, they were making a relatively large number of, of relatively important decisions, you know, which, which, which business should we buy next and how much should we pay for it and so on. And you know, initially, and obviously the documentation, you know, gave extensive rights of, you know, approval to the private equity firm concerned. And and for the first several acquisitions, you know, there was a big process, and you know, the private equity firm were very much looking over management's shoulder, and to some extent, second guessing the decisions that they were, pro you know, the, the acquisitions that they were proposing, the decisions they wanted to make, but. Over time, the private equity firm got more and more comfortable that the management team were making good decisions and making sound proposals, and the level of um, of oversight, you know, reduced. And so, as you'd expect in any kind of you know flexible um, mm. structure that's that 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 accommodates changing circumstances, um, the governance structure itself was flexed in order to in order to accommodate what was regarded as a you know. As a, as a sort of steady state, stable situation where, you know, it wasn't so important for, mm. um, for, for, for the private equity firm to, to spend so much time analysing every single detail because, you know, they've got good people in place who are perfectly capable of doing that. Yeah. And they had confidence in those people. Of course, as soon as that, conf I mean, not that it happened in my scenario, but as soon as that confidence started to break down, you'd, you'd see 
you'd see the situation changing and the governance structures, you know, adapting uh, to to accommodate that. So, so I think what was interesting was not so much what was baked into the documents. Well, that was interesting, but you know, as interesting as that was, was how in practice the governance structures were really being operated. And that's what quantitative research can't pick up. You've got to right. speak to people. Right. Exactly. Yeah. How much over lawyering did you come across in the uh, in the contracts that you looked at? Well, I mean, uh, over lawyering may be a pejorative term. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in the documents, as every lawyer and every practitioner knows, that's um, um, that's there you know, for legal reasons that you that you hope you never need to use or look at, um, and you know, in the vast majority of cases, you never do need to use or look at. Some of it is just contracting around wasteful company law rules that are really designed with a different scenario a different context in mind you know i said earlier that uh, part of the problem was that a lot of the a lot of the law uh, certainly in the uk around um around directors duties and so on is is really shaped by a debate about corporate governance which is you know, which is different to the debate we should be having around corporate governance in private equity and so you've got a lot of rules some of which are supposedly mandatory rules um which you know aren't really necessary and which just sort of get in the way of good decision making and therefore you spend quite a lot of time you know making sure that you don't fall foul of those rules and yet can hopefully still do what makes sense for the business um a lot of the conflict of interest rules in particular are, uh, are in that are in that category are there any uh lessons that that you've identified that seems to make private equity work very well that can be um, migrated over to other forms of company ownership. So clearly not everything is going to work just because it's different. But there are, presumably there will be things and maybe they're more about custom than kind of rules. Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, uh, and there has been some work actually done, um, you know, out of London Business School and various other places where they have tried to take sort of the private equity board model and draw out lessons for public companies in particular. And and, and there's, you know, there is certainly a, a lot of that which is, I think, valuable. There's some, um, there's a project going on in the US at the moment in, in amongst a couple of US academics who are looking at uh, how public company boards can learn from private equity boards and finding various um, interesting things to say about uh, about the board structures in public companies that could be adapted. So there, there is, there is, you know, lots of people have been looking at that. And and yes, you know, I I would say that you know on the whole, having having boards of people who are well informed, who you know are relatively um, who meet relatively frequently, who are engaged with the business. I mean, it's to some extent, it's common sense, but you know, those kinds of boards seem to me to operate more effectively um, than some of the more distant boards that you've seen certainly in the past mm. in some spheres. But I think a lot of that learning has been done. So I don't want to overstate I don't want to overstate it. As you say, there are lots of differences and there are lots of things that don't translate. And I think there are learnings, but you know, it's uh, private equity is not exactly a secret and there are plenty mm. of people who have looked at that and thought about it long and hard and but isn't one of boards the boards have evolved. I think maybe Sorry. there's maybe th maybe maybe an area that's where it's more fertile is uh, and again, you know, I don't know much about this part of the market, so maybe it's already been done there too. But I think, you know, um, privately held businesses 
with different ownership structures, I think have things that could be learned from private equity models. So, you know, entrepreneur-led businesses, you know, founder-led business, you know, I think could learn quite a lot from thinking about, well, you know, okay, let, let's say they don't need or want an outside investor. Perhaps they're not yet at the stage where they want it or perhaps they don't need it for other reasons. It might, worth, might be worth them thinking, well, what would a private equity investor do to the governance structure in this business if they were to invest? And is there any aspect of that that we could benefit from? And bringing in outsiders, bringing in people with different skill sets, different networks, bringing in people who have been there and done that, who can act as mentors to the CEO, who, who, who are invested in the business. And I mean that, I mean, I mean financially invested, but also, you know, intellectually, emotionally invested in the business, people who can really help us to develop to the next level um, and getting those people alongside us as the as the founders you know that could be a, a valuable thing to do and putting in place decision making structures which you know processes you know they can be bureaucratic and unhelpful but often they can they can lead to a better outcome i mean you know having the right information uh, around uh, around a decision before you make it you know self-evidently mm. um, tends to all other things being equal lead to a better decision being made right mm. um better management of stakeholders you know something mm. that i think a lot of businesses are starting to realize and you know uk law is changing a bit in this regard so people are going to realize it even more i think in the in the coming years but you know management of of stakeholder interests in businesses is is important and understanding how you do that and um and what you're doing it for um i think has a uh has has has, has its place and i think it's something mm. else that that people could um you know, could think about private equity firms as well. I mean, uh, not all private equity mm. firms do that well, but you know, all businesses can learn about the, can, can improve. I think their their stakeholder management processes. So it's those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, putting in place proper controls um, around things like corruption and health and safety and so on. I mean, if you want to if, if you want to sell your business to a trade buyer. You know, it's much easier to do that if you can demonstrate that you've got a well-governed business. And on often, you know, a lot of the value add of private equity ownership is to is to take what's a very successful business and make it a well-governed successful business, and then uh, you know that makes it a more saleable proposition. Mm. So you know, you, I think I think other forms of business owner could 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 learn from that. Yeah, that's a really great point. Maybe it's something the BVCA could do. Is like, what would a private equity investor do to your business? <laughs> or maybe it'd be taking opportunity away from its members <laughs> but uh yeah it's certainly it's got to make a company much more investable doesn't it it's got to be a really cheap way of doing it you know you can work really hard to make your company valuable or you can just think about how to improve the governance yeah i mean and obviously governance like saying doesn't get you there you you, you need you need uh you need everything else as well sure. but um but i but i do think that um you know, I mean, I genuinely believe that a well-governed business, not an over-governed business, because that's yeah. that's wasteful and harmful, but a well-governed business, you know, one that does, you know, a, a, a group of people understanding what risks the business faces, business risks and legal and yeah. regulatory risks, reputational risks, understanding those and managing and mitigating them as much as possible. It's a valuable exercise, right? Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, a, 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 any smart business person probably rec recognizes that. But when you're working, you know, flat out to try and, you know, sell as many products as you can, and mm. um, you know, drive drive the business forward. You know, from a f from a commercial perspective, you know, sometimes that's not the top of your list. And um, 
you know, spending a bit of time thinking about those things, I think is valuable. Yeah, I think also generally entrepreneurs might have a bit of the dim view of governments because they read so much about public company governance mm. and they just think, well, I don't want that bureaucracy. Mm. They don't think about it in the private equity way, mm. which is people that are going to add value to my business. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, let's try and round off this conversation on corporate governance. Is, um, you know, w- are there any areas where you think more research is required in order to understand private equity, even private equity governance? even better yeah i mean I, I there's 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 always more to do and i i mean i'd love to do more uh i, I um and I, and I think i will do more i mean at the moment i'm 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 writing my thesis up as a book which i hope will get published next year and there will be a bit of extra material in there beyond what was in the thesis as well as a bit of updating and and, and a slight rewriting to make it more more, more readable um, Brilliant. do you have a publisher but uh, yes a cambridge university press are, fantastic are doing it. so what's it going to be called it's a work in progress yeah. I've got to think of a snappier title than corporate governance in private equity backed companies you do yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe you can help me with that <laughs> um, but yes so um, so that's, that's that's my current kind of uh, one of my current projects but um, but I do want to do more research and I think there is certainly more to do around specifically the kind of ESG responsible investing aspects of my research I mean I sort of only touched on that because I, I didn't really start out in 2013 thinking about um, uh, about the kind of responsible investment aspect of corporate governance. I, I, a lot of my thesis is actually taken up with analysis of the UK legal rules, as you'll know, because you've read it, and, um, and, and you know, how those rules constrain or facilitate or, or, or at least or, or are otherwise sort of neutral in terms of the way that they shape governance processes. Um, and that's you know, and that's a, an exercise that I'm keen to continue too, because I do think there are changes in law that could be helpful um, in, in order to to facilitate kind of better governance in the UK. But um, you know, what I what I stumbled upon to some extent as I was as I was doing the research was, you know, the increasing need for the board to be focused on you know what are often referred to as ESG issues and how. Uh, boards of portfolio companies manage those kinds of issues and you know, to the, the extent to which they manage them at all and if mm. they do manage them mm. how they do that well and when they do that well and I think that's an area where I'd like to spend you know, spend some more time because I think that is a obviously it's topical and, and important um, and I think you know there's relatively little work been done today in the private equity world uh, certainly in, in, in the academic world uh, on that topic. Well, I, th- you know, I think that's great news because I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the rate at which ESG has gained traction is just utterly phenomenal. I think it's, it's like something like a third of all actively managed capital is managed according in some w- shape or form to ESG principles. And, you know, it wasn't even a term 10 years ago. Mm. And yet, if you look online, I've done quite a lot of thinking about ESG because it interests me for some reason. There's There's very little discourse about fundamentally what it is and any research always starts with a presupposition that it's a good thing now let's start talking and it never deals with it from first principles um, and of course there's the uh, the UNPRI the principles of responsible investment but these are you know these six, six principles are, are effectively meaningless and self-referential and so it, it does worry me that you know a few years ago I was quite complacent about it because I just thought well it's it's PR and it's another tick of the box but it's so influential now that I think it's really important to have a really s- firm bedrock 
on, on which to kind of build you know, a logical bedrock. And one of the things that concerns me is that all, all the logic around ESG is tied back to reputation and tied back to the market. And I'm a big free market man, but I think there are some things that need to go beyond the market. And I think ethics is one of them. And ESG does a bit of a trick, as far as I can tell. And it, d it doesn't require anyone to think of ethics. All they have to think about is their reputation. And it's, I think it's a hugely complex issue to unpack, and it has not been unpacked. I certainly don't have a, any conclusion. But well, I think you're right, and I think that um, uh, I think I think that the interesting thing about ESG is that ESG is a label which covers a whole range of different things, and and they're very disparate and they're, they're very different, and you know increasingly most of those ESG issues, I mean, people talk about them as non-financial issues, but I mean, they are financial issues. I mean, most of them, anyway, at any rate, are financial issues in the sense that, you know, they have a very real potential to translate into financial success or financial failure. I mean, let's take, you know, I mean, the obvious one is climate risk. You know, climate risk for many businesses, by no means all, but for many businesses, you know, climate risk is absolutely is, is absolutely fundamental. I mean, you know, I any business that's operating in an energy-intensive environment that doesn't realise that their business model is under threat, you know, if they don't think about how they adapt their business in the next five years or so, you know, is missing a massive mm. financial trick. And and of course, you know, most businesses do now recognise that, but it's not it's not. You know, it's not a non-financial issue. It's mm. a it's a very clear and direct link to success. And I mean, what I often say to people is, say, private equity is a sort of short term. You know, they only own businesses for, you know, three to seven years, five years, whatever it might be. And so, you know, the time frame in which climate risk is going to come come home to roost is longer than that. I mean, it's getting shorter, but you know, it's it's longer than that. So, and I say, well, yeah, but you've got to think. You know, what's Private equity firms want to sell their businesses in five years. That's what you've just told me. Who are they going to sell them to? They're going to tell them to somebody who's going to want to hold that business for at least five years, probably more, depending on who the buyer is. What, 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 what's that person going to be thinking about in five years' time? What's the exit environment going to look like in five years' time? And if your business doesn't look like the sort of business you want to buy in five years' time, then you're not going to be able to sell it in five years' time. You're not going to be able to sell it for a decent, you know, you're not going to be able to maximize the value of it. So yes, it's true that private equity firms don't aren't going to own businesses for twenty years. That's not their model, but that doesn't mean to say they don't have to think about long-term risks because they know that the buyer, usually a very sophisticated buyer, trade by another private equity firm, whatever it is, somebody's going to do a lot of due diligence who understands the industry that the that that company is operating in, understands therefore the regulatory challenges, you know, mm -hmm. tax increases on you know carbon-emitting businesses or whatever it might be, you know, they're not going to be able to pull the wool over the buyer's eyes. Yeah. So so they need to make sure that business is ready for sale in five years. It's built years. in, isn't it? That yeah, in a way, it accelerates the, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, it accelerates the need for change mm -hmm. to respond to those kinds of issues. Because yeah. whereas some owners could afford to wait profits. for 10 years, yeah. Yeah. somebody who's got to sell it in five years' time to somebody who's then thinking about the next five years, you know, has to has to be able to persuade that person that it's a good investment. So, you know, I, I, I feel, feel like, you know, ESG is a is a sort of broad label which covers lots of lots of different things, but increasingly, you know, those things are are, are, are real business issues. And yeah. to me, 
they're no different to any other business issue in that respect. Right. So so it kind of makes it odd that they've been kind of divided out. And you you know you go to these endless conferences talking about how to integrate ESG. It's like we well, you only have to integrate them because you've artificially extracted them. <laughs> so so I think it's a really great point that they are financial issues as as currently articulated because there is an e- there will be an ethical component to all of these things as well but the current fr- ESG framework I kind of feel leaves the ethical complexities and gray areas aside which is a bit too convenient yeah I mean they manifest themselves in different ways and and in, and some in many cases in, in many different ways simultaneously so you know cyber security for example some people say that's an ESG issue some people say it isn't it probably is some sort of governance issue so it's probably within the right. G of governance I suppose but it doesn't really matter to me whether it is or it isn't the fact is for any business that looks after lots of people's data it's a pretty crucial business issue and and it's a financial issue because it's regulated and because you don't want to get stuck with a massive fine from the regulator for for, for breach it's a business issue because you know if consumers don't trust you with their data they'll stop giving it to you right. I mean you know, and, and if your business model relies upon people giving you your data, you, you, you need to be someone who's trusted to look after it. And so there are a whole range of different ways in which that issue, for example, manifests itself into real business risk. And obviously businesses that are responsible and businesses that are thinking about creating sort of long term sustainable value, um, which is what, you know, which is what business owners really ought to be thinking about. Um, you know, are going to be focused heavily on cybersecurity. Yeah. And Simon, you've got to agree to come back on once you've published your book and thought more about ESG, we'd love to have you back. Look forward to it. Thank you very much, Ross. Thank you, Simon. Cheers. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website, fund-shack.com, for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.